This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Robert Lamont didn't believe the words of the workers who renovated Summerwind Mansion, nor the servants who worked there once it was completed. He thought there was no such thing as ghosts, until he saw one. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, follow Haunted Places free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of gore and gun violence and may provoke sensations of claustrophobia. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Robert Lamont only believed in what he could see. Well, in that and the economy. He was a sensible businessman who would go on to be the U.S. Secretary of Commerce under Herbert Hoover, So he didn't believe the men who were renovating his newly purchased fishing lodge when they told him they'd heard bumps in the night. He didn't believe them when they said that tools went missing and that mysterious figures appeared without warning and then disappeared into thin air. He didn't believe the servants when they echoed these reports again and again and again. He kept Summerwind, as he and his wife like to call it, for over 15 years, He ignored the knocks, the shadows, the whispers, the windows and doors opening and closing at the oddest hours of the night. But then, one night, as he and his wife were eating dinner, the door to the basement creaked open. A strange man mounted the steps, bit by bit. There was no other entrance to the cellar. The intruder had to have concealed himself below somehow waiting to ambush them. Lamont took no chances as he drew his pistol and fired. His aim was true, the bullet striking the man in the chest as the basement door slammed shut behind him. But the stranger did not fall. He did not even blink. He advanced forward, his blank eyes staring into and beyond him. He stepped close enough to touch. Then, faded completely from view.
Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Summerwind Mansion, an opulent lake house in northeast Wisconsin, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. In Land O'Lakes, Wisconsin, just south of the state's border with Michigan, there was once a house on West Bay Lake, a Victorian built in the 1910s, surrounded by scrub oak and thin northern pines. It once held 20 rooms. The property was initially used as a rustic resort before it was renovated into a stately mansion by civil engineer and businessman Robert Lamont in 1916. Lamont and his wife Helen Gertrude would vacation there during the 1920s and through his tenure as President Herbert Hoover's Secretary of Commerce during the Great Depression. The Lamonts called their home Summerwind. Lamont left the president's service in 1932, likely withdrawing to the mansion to recuperate after an exhausting and in many ways fruitless effort to pull the United States out of its economic spiral. According to a frequently repeated legend, the couple was having dinner in the house's kitchen one night when the door to the basement shook itself open, revealing the spectral form of a man. Lamont panicked and fired two shots as the door swung shut, leaving two bullet holes in the door. Perhaps it was this experience that caused the couple to flee the house. The details of when and why the Lamont sold their property are unclear. What is known is that by the time Lamont died in 1948, Summerwind belonged to the Kiefer family, who also used it as a vacation getaway. Unfortunately, the Kiefer's experienced many misfortunes in Summerwind, According to one story, Mr. Kiefer passed away less than a year after they purchased the house, leaving his wife in despair and dire financial trouble. Across the three decades the Kiefer's owned it, the house deteriorated with neglect, and its land was eventually subdivided and offered up for sale. However, many of the buyers were allegedly forced to back out the last minute because of sudden financial disasters the unlucky house kept returning to the Kiefer's. In the early 1970s, a family of eight moved into the home with the promise of renovating it. The darkness of summer wind would terrorize Arnold and Ginger Hinshaw and their six children, fracturing their bonds and their sense of safety forever. Bertie was almost seven years old. She knew she was too old to be sneaking to her parents' bed anymore, even if this house was old and weird. The door stuck so hard that she was sure that one of her older brothers must have glued them shut. Brian, probably. A few hours later, it would open on its own. The curtains disappeared off the walls. Windows flew open and slammed shut in the middle of the night. But she was growing up. She could deal with all of this. Until it wasn't just the house that was acting strangely. 
Their father, Arnold, had been angrier than usual. She tried to give him her allowance to see if that would cheer him up, but he'd only sighed and gone back to his organ. She hated the organ. It was big, and it sounded like there was an owl stuck inside, crying out for someone to save him from the hollow tubes. Every song her father played was dark and sad. It made her think of thunderstorms, and the boogeyman that her brother Brian had tried to convince her was the real cause of all the trouble. But Bertie knew Brian was wrong. She took Brian's dare to look under the bed, but she didn't see the monstrous yellow eyes of a long-toothed man with a dusty top hat. No. When she looked under the bed, she was met by the soft gaze of a woman. Her name was Matilda, and she only wanted to sit with the family at dinner because her family had gone away. Bertie's parents didn't like when Bertie said this, but it was true. It was important for them to know that Matilda didn't mean to impose. Bertie was glad to have Matilda with her that night, when the radiator shrieked and the wind howled. The sometimes invisible woman held the little girl's hand as she pushed against the heavy door that led to Bertie's parents' room. Six lumps protruded from the sheets like old covered furniture. It was her family, all safely nestled together in the same bed. Aside from her father, of course, who was banging away at the organ downstairs. Bertie crawled in alongside her siblings, asking Matilda to watch out for them. Matilda gave a small nod. Bertie closed her eyes and tried to sleep, but the organ wouldn't let her. It screeched and squawked, and Bertie couldn't help but picture the owl with a gaping wound flapping its wings and trying to escape. Her mother, Ginger, pulled her in tight. Bertie felt her eyes grow heavy as the tears started to dry in her cheeks. She didn't want to sleep. She needed to know what would happen with the organ. But Matilda held her hand, and sleep took her in the end. Two hands grabbed onto Bertie's shoulders. Her eyes shot open, and she screamed. In the darkness, the whites of her father's eyes glowed. His features looked bigger, rounder, almost like the ghost she'd been for Halloween. Huge, wide eyes and a gaping mouth. Bertie rubbed her eyes. He shook her a little harder than before. Ginger woke up beside her and asked what was going on. Arnold let go of Bertie and clapped his hands with excitement. He'd found something, he said. Bertie pulled the covers over her head. She wasn't interested in show and tell right now. They could do that later. A rush of Cold air grasped at Bertie's skin as her father pulled away the top sheet. Matilda stood behind his shoulder. Bertie asked her if things would be all right. Matilda shook her head gently, but Bertie wasn't sure what she meant. Bertie climbed out of the big bed. Her feet clenched as they touched the floor. Everything in the house was always so cold. She turned to watch her mom wake up all the other kids. She didn't get why her dad had woken her up first. He should have gone in order. Then she could have slept more. Arnold marched them all down the creaky staircase and into the hallway. 
There was a small closet that Bertie sometimes used during hide-and-seek, halfway down the wall. He stopped them in front of it and pulled Ginger in first. Bertie tried to peer around her siblings, but they were blocking her view. She stood on her tiptoes, and when that didn't work, resorted to crawling around on the floor. Before she could get a good view, her mother screamed. Bertie jumped, nearly tripping Brian as she popped up from below. He yelled at her to stop playing around. She told him to shut up. Their mom was still screaming. Ginger bolted out of the room on shaky legs. Bertie wrapped herself around her mom's knees, telling her that it would be okay. Matilda could protect them from anything. Ginger caught her breath before looking down at Bertie. She shook her head and told Bertie to go back upstairs. Bertie took two steps before she was grabbed from behind. She kicked and screamed and tried to bite the hand. Her father's voice boomed, ordering her to calm down. She froze in his arms. He turned her around. His wild eyes and heaving breath made him look like the boogeyman from Brian's stories. She held very still while he carried her into the small closet. Her mom stepped forward and asked him to put Bertie down. Bertie nodded her head. She really would like to be on the floor. Arnold dropped her, her butt hitting the ground first. Her bottom lip shook as she tried not to cry. Arnold started shooing the rest of the kids out of the small closet. Ginger told him to knock it off. He was scaring them. Arnold replied that they should be scared. Bertie tried to make herself small. She crawled into the back corner and pulled a coat over her head. Maybe her dad would just forget about her now. It wasn't so bad. She could stay here. Matilda held her hand again, and she tried to stop shaking. She heard the door close, then the lock. The jacket fell away. In a soft voice, Arnold asked if she would follow him over to the shoe drawer. He wasn't trying to hurt her. He just needed her to see it. She had to see it. Then he would know it was real. Bertie wondered if all adults sounded this weird all the time. But she placed her small hand in his much bigger one, letting him lead her to the shoe drawer. She hated this part of the closet. Sometimes it rattled, and Brian always said that he wasn't the one shaking it. But she never believed him. Ever. This time, however, she might have to. Arnold clicked on a flashlight and asked her to climb inside. It was dark and cramped. The whole area smelled wet, and she could see small spiders skittering in the corners. She didn't want to go inside, but the way her father watched her let her know there was no alternative. His manner was somewhere between predatory and pleading. She ducked down and took a few steps inside, her father's flashlight illuminated the room, not the drawer, so she couldn't really see much of anything. She fanned her hands out in front of her, looking for a place to sit. When she found one, she pulled her legs together and sat crisscross applesauce. Arnold asked if she saw it yet. She told him she didn't. He shined the flashlight into the space. It was too bright. She scooted back and bumped into something. Slowly. Bertie turned around. 
long, stringy hair spilled down onto the floor. For a second, she thought that it might belong to Matilda, but this person didn't feel like Matilda. There was no soft, cold breeze, no gentle grip, only dust and a strange, hollow weight. Bertie lifted the hair and saw a pair of eyes staring blankly up at the ceiling. They belonged to a strange man she didn't recognize. She tried to talk to him, but he didn't answer her back. She told him it was okay. They were a nice family. Matilda would tell him. Bertie grasped his hand and tried to shake it. His arm fell into her hands, limp and lifeless. Her eyes widened. She didn't like this. She told her dad she didn't like this. He told her to keep looking. She bent low, and then she saw it. The big, gaping wound. His bones looked like little teeth peeking out, ready to eat her. This was the boogeyman Brian had seen. She screamed. Arnold and Ginger Hinshaw rented Summerwind in the early 1970s, likely at a low price because the home had been unwanted for so long. They promised to renovate it into the historic showplace it had once been. According to Ginger, things appeared to be going well at first. She found a collection of concealed plants for the home and began restoring the house to its former aesthetics, down to the smallest details and paint colors. The Hinshaws tried to employ specialized workers to fix the many electrical and heating problems in the house. They frequently called in sick, refused to come once they learned the house's address, or walked off the job after only a day on site. The couple discovered that the locals believed the house was haunted. Arnold and Ginger were undeterred, even after their children began to make more and more frightening claims about what they experienced inside the house. The constant sensation of being watched, windows and doors opening by themselves, whispers and unnatural shadows in the hallways, a ghostly woman appearing near the dining room. Arnold discovered a strange hollow area behind a built-in shoe drawer in a closet. The space was too small for him to investigate, so he sent one of his daughters through with a flashlight. She screamed and ran out, and to this day claims that she saw a human skull with strands of black hair. According to the legend, Arnold made the children check one by one, and each confirmed that the corpse was there. But for some reason, the Hinshaws never reported it to the police, and the space was empty when it was checked by later owners. Whether or not the corpse was really there, something changed in Arnold that day. He became irritable, snapping at Ginger and the children regularly. He stopped working and became obsessed with playing the organ they brought with them, playing all through the night and telling Ginger that demons demanded that he play. Ginger and the children hid together in one of the bedrooms night after night, trying to block out the discordant music. Ginger tried to distract herself by having a few friends over, but they too were disturbed by the negative feeling in the mansion and a ghostly figure they saw, the same one the children had described. Arnold refused to address Ginger's fears, focusing only on the organ and his rage. 
Arnold suffered a nervous breakdown after less than six months in the house, and Ginger attempted suicide. Finally, Ginger called her father, Raymond Bober, to come get her and her children, leaving Arnold behind. As her father drove them away in his camper, Ginger vowed to never return to the house. Coming up, Summer Wind Calls again. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. After the Hinshaw family abandoned Summerwin, the mansion lay vacant for a time. The rumors in town likely prevented any tenants from taking up residence. Ginger and Arnold divorced, and Arnold went into treatment for his mental health. Ginger recovered and eventually remarried. She struggled to understand how much of what happened to her family in Summerwind was due to psychological problems versus something supernatural. Unsure of the truth, Ginger began to research the paranormal and told herself she'd never go back to Summerwind again. Then, shockingly, Ginger's father Raymond decided to purchase the home. Raymond and his son Carl moved onto the property and began renovating. Carl was a man divided. He wanted to help his father make something of his investment in the property, but he didn't agree with the methods. Communing with the spirits and using a Ouija board wasn't a way to run a renovation project. But his dad had always been eccentric. Maybe he'd let Ginger's ghost stories go to his head. Carl loved his sister, but she was eccentric too. As soon as he pulled up to the house, he could understand why Ginger refused to step foot inside anymore. The building sagged under its own weight. The curtains on the second floor window fluttered. Carl knew it was locked and empty, but he could feel eyes on him as he walked from his truck to the front door. Carl leveraged his weight against the ancient door and pushed it open. The hinges squeaked sounding more off-key than Arnold's organ playing had ever been. Carl had a small laugh at his former brother-in-law's expense. The inside of the house was cold, even though it was the height of summer. He didn't worry about that too much. As soon as he got to work, he would be grateful for the chill. The wooden beams creaked under his feet, groaning like he was stepping on wounded men. He studied the damaged slats, trying to calculate how much flooring would have to be torn up and replaced. Then, through the widest gap in the floor he'd found, he saw a pair of eyes staring up at him. No, 
That didn't make sense. He kneeled down on the wood, the boards far too pliable under his feet. The eyes slid back into the darkness below. Carl shook his head. It didn't make sense at all. The house stood on a stone foundation. There was no depth for eyes to sink back into. He told himself to get a grip. Two seconds in, and he was giving in to his dad and sister's superstitions. He was here to work. Carl placed his toolbox beside the basement door and started under the kitchen sink, fixing the old pipes. He passed nearly an hour with his head inside the cabinet, tightening fasteners and checking pressure. He heard a clatter of small stones against the windows and jerked with a start, nearly banging his head against the underside of the counter. He put his wrench down and headed for the front door ready to yell at whatever kids thought this place was their personal funhouse. The hallway was darker than he expected. It had only been a few hours, but the small lamps were now only pale glimmers of light he could see. He stepped onto the porch and began to understand. The sky was gray, darker than he'd ever seen it. The clouds over the lake heavy with the threat of precipitation. The lake reflected the darkness, with only the small white crests of choppy waves dividing the sky from the water. Then he heard the clatter again. It wasn't kids. It was hail. Golf ball-sized pieces of ice pelted against the windows, leaving small spiderweb cracks behind. But the cracks didn't stay. For a moment, he swore he could see the glass bending inward and outward, as if breathing away the damage. He stepped off the porch and into the deluge to get a better look. But from here, the windows looked undisturbed, except for one small detail. Small clouds of condensation bloomed on one of the higher windows. Someone was watching him from above. He turned away, telling himself that he was letting Ginger's stories infect his mind. The house was old. There were drafts. He was still alone. But he needed to check that the windows were closed, so he mounted the staircase. The second floor hallway was as dark as the bottom floor, despite the large windows at either end overlooking the forest and the lake. He checked each room in turn wondering which had belonged to his nieces and nephews, and which had belonged to his sister and her now ex-husband. But as he turned the corner, he received an answer. All the windows had been shut, but not this one. This one stood hanging open, the curtains blowing in the gale of the storm. He rushed forward and closed it, nearly scraping his hands on a set of large nails that extended from the frame. It had been nailed shut. Carl headed back into the hallway, resolved to continue his work. Someone called his name. He returned to the master bedroom, wanting to see if someone was in the courtyard. But no one was. He resolved to return to his work and had made it three quarters of the way down the hallway when he heard the voice again. He paused holding his breath. In the master bedroom, he heard the window open. He rushed into the room. The window was closed. The courtyard was empty. 
Carl shook his head, reminding himself he was the rational one in the family. He finally descended the stairs and re-entered the living room. A gunshot rang out like a crack of thunder. Carl fell backwards, catching himself on the wall. He steadied himself against the peeling wallpaper, then headed for the kitchen. It sounded like it had come from the back of the house. Maybe someone was hunting without a permit. But the hallway was different than he remembered. It was smaller. He had to turn sideways to fit through, his shoulders scraping against the walls. He squeezed through and kept moving forward, telling himself he was just letting anxiety get the better of him. He would be better when he reached the kitchen. But the kitchen had expanded. The broken chairs by the basement door pulled several feet away from the table, as if the room had been stretched by some unseen giant. He looked left and right, checked the back door. It might as well have been welded shut. No intruders from there. He turned nervously toward the basement door. He'd sworn it hadn't been open. But now it was. Carl stepped towards the door, telling himself to confront the darkness that awaited, deeper and more complete than the storm clouds that surrounded the house. He told himself that whatever his lizard brain was trying to warn him against wasn't real. Footsteps echoed from the basement, rising up the steps. Someone was here. Carl tried to move, but he was frozen by fear. His eyes glued to the steps he could see, waiting for a head to rise up above them. The acrid stench of gunpowder assaulted his nostrils. Small plumes of smoke floated up toward the ceiling. From behind him came the sound of a bullet clicking in a chamber. Something was pounded into place. A hammer was pulled back. Carl had barely thrown himself to the ground when a bullet slammed into the basement door behind him, exactly where his head had been. He turned his head to find a man standing there on the opposite side of the room, wearing 1930s clothing. He had a pistol leveled at Carl's head. The man pulled the hammer back again. Carl finally regained control of his limbs. He scrambled backwards, trying to take cover behind the table near the basement door. Then, someone else came up the stairs, and the shooting started again. Raymond intended to renovate Summer Wind into a restaurant and bed and breakfast, but his attempts proved about as fruitful as his daughter Ginger's. He reported that the house seemed to grow and shrink each time he took measurements. His son Carl says that he was chased off the property by disembodied voices and the sound of a gun firing in the kitchen. When he investigated the basement door, he discovered two aged bullet holes. Raymond eventually wrote a book called The Carver Effect under a pseudonym in which he claimed that Summerwind was haunted by the spirit of the 18th century explorer Jonathan Carver, who was searching for a large land deed that was supposedly buried somewhere in the house. Many people have been skeptical of this claim, however. It's unclear how a document would end up in the foundation of a house built over a century after Carver died, but Summerwind didn't need a built-in treasure hunt to be frightening. Long after Raymond and his son abandoned the property, 
whatever presence was in the house was still doing damage to the world around it, and the locals were reaching a breaking point. Up next, the living try to end Summerwind's menace once and for all. Now back to the story. By the 1980s, Summerwind had become known as one of the most haunted places in Wisconsin, if not the entire country. Now abandoned and crumbling, the mansion was featured in Life magazine in 1980. The house's derelict appearance only added fuel to the stories surrounding it. After Raymond and his son moved out, it passed to new owners, who never lived on the property, but saw it as a good investment. Land O'Lakes resident Babs Tracy, who briefly owned the property in the 1980s, told the Milwaukee, Wisconsin Journal Sentinel that she and her husband once saw the mansion breathing as they camped nearby. This added some credence to Bober's claim that the house shifted size. But other locals, particularly the neighbors, were less compelled by Summerwind's story. They frequently complained about thrill-seekers who would trespass on the Summerwind property and knock on their doors in search of the notorious house. For these reasons, some even say that the restless locals may have taken matters into their own hands to determine the house's fate. Dennis hated that house. It was an eyesore and a nuisance, attracting the worst kind of people to his lovely little lakeside town. Most of all, it was a fire hazard. Faulty wiring, faulty appliances, faulty everything. But like many delinquents, Summerwind had protection. It was still under private ownership, even as it had grown more and more dilapidated since the 1970s. A colony of bats had taken up residence in the cavernous house, but this only made it more appealing to Life magazine. Dennis and his other council members had begged the owners of the house to turn the journalists away. They refused. Maybe this way, the owners said, they could finally pay for the renovation. Dennis had led the charge to the courts, appealing to have the mansion raised for the good of the community. The judge said no. The place had hosted a president, after all. So now it was up to Dennis. He was going to burn it to the ground. He warned his friend at the fire department. He didn't want to harm the nearby woods, after all. Really, he was saving them. Dennis waited until the bats had left for the night and pushed his way into the summer wind living room. He nearly tripped over a mound of broken bottles. They had seemingly been stacked in an unnerving sculpture, half pyramid and half human figure. Kids today would do anything to be cool and different. He bet they came here to drink, worship Satan, and play Dungeons and Dragons. The flutter and scratch of a bat clinging to the wall outside startled him, and he edged away toward the dining room. He began spreading out his fuel on the worn and warped boards, but then it began to rain. Dennis couldn't contain his irritation. He kicked a bottle on the ground, but flew across the room faster than he expected, smashing it to the wall, the shatter of breaking glass echoing around the space, somehow carrying over the rain. For a moment, the deluge seemed to pause, 
A crack of thunder shook the night. Or was it a gunshot? Dennis wanted to run, but he knew he wouldn't get another chance. He dumped the rest of the gas out as quickly as he could, walking backwards toward the front door. He bumped into something behind him. He braced for the sound of more broken glass, thinking it must be the strange bottle figure he'd seen at the entrance. But he heard no such thing. Instead, he felt the swish of skirts. He turned slowly, the gas can hanging limply from his hand. There was a woman there, her gaze sad and confused. Her eyes were the most remarkable shade of gray, like the lake in a storm. It took Dennis a moment to realize her eyes were the only part of her that were solid. Everything else, from her simple gown to her sturdy hands, seemed to shimmer in and out of his view. Only her gaze remained, questioning, doubting, threatening. Dennis stepped backwards again, nearly losing his footing on the fuel-soaked floor. She didn't advance, only stayed there, studying him. He rotated around her, his eyes locked with hers. She held out her hand. He jerked out of her reach and kept stepping toward the door. She seemed unmoved, only watching. She held her hand out again. He heard a child's laugh and then a scream far away. He was so close to the door now that he could taste the rain, safety calling to him. She reached out again. He pulled backwards, finally reaching the doorway. He stepped out onto the porch, removing his lighter from his pocket and flicking it open. He threw it, and it passed straight through her outstretched hand. The flame caught behind her, radiating outward along the lake of gas. He couldn't help but crow in victory. Then he looked down and realized the fuel was still on his feet. Summer Wind Mansion burned to the ground on June 19, 1988. The official explanation is that a lightning strike ignited the house. But ghost hunter Craig Naring alleges that Summerwind was torched by the Land O'Lakes town board. He claims to have unnamed witnesses who reported seeing fire trucks, deputies and other officials spreading straw around the mansion on the evening of June 18th. A 1985 Milwaukee Journal article reported that Ronald Ramesh, a town board member at the time, said that Land O'Lakes planned to petition the county court for permission to burn down Summerwind due to its status as a public nuisance. Burmesh later told Jim Stingle of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that he was misquoted and attributes the fire to a lightning strike. All that remains of Summerwind today is a set of parallel stone chimney stacks reaching up toward the often overcast sky and the house's stone staircase and foundation. Fundraising efforts have begun to rebuild the mansion and set it up as a bed and breakfast, but they appear to have stalled. There are several elements of Raymond Bober's story that don't track, particularly the Carver connection, but it's hard to deny the pain expressed by Ginger Hinshaw, her brother Carl, and Ginger's daughter, 
when they were interviewed for Discovery Channel's A Haunting series. Something really seems to have happened in that house. And the stories from Summerwind's visitors, who continue to journey to the burned-out skeleton the house has become, suggest that something is still happening. The space still seems to shrink and expand. The smell of gunpowder fills the air. The nightly flight of bats is sometimes broken by a strange silhouette in one of the shattered windows. Those who venture there today know to bring a measuring tape and a flashlight. You never know what breathes in the shadows. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Ache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson.